Colored Red, a podcast that's all about Colorado true crime. I'm your host, Laura, and I know everything is really, really crazy right now, but here's a fun story today that I would like to tell you guys. Today I'm having a look at a story that I found really too intriguing not to share. This is the story of a house, and like many houses built near the end of the 19th century in Denver, it's a house built in a city that was still very much populated by pioneer black sheep type people who saw a new opportunity in a new city and wanted to get away from business as usual in the coastal cities of the East. The reason this house is so mysterious is because it was the inspiration for a novel that became quite popular when it was written in 1905 called The House of a Thousand Candles. This book became a national sensation and it was released in episodic format in newspapers all across the country and was made into two movies, both of which are not quite what the story is about, and numerous plays. You can find this book for free online to read, and we all have quite a bit of time to do that now. And there's also an audio version of it available at LibriVox. The story was written by a man named Meredith Nicholson, and the story is believed to be loosely based on a Denver home that is now called the Sykes-Nicholson-Moore House, and it is located at 1410 High Street. There are two to three homes in the United States currently that are actually called the House of a Thousand Candles, but the reason why many believe Nicholson used the Denver house is because he lived there, and because he used some Denver-based names for his characters in the novel. Like, um, one of the names is Glenarm in the novel, which of course we know as a street name, and the name associated with a number of buildings in Colorado, which was originally brought over by a Scottish immigrant who named these things after his family's castle back in Scotland. Uncle Gaylord is another name that is used in the novel quite a bit. There's also an article written by a woman named Edith Eudora Cole in 1948 for the Denver Post, and she makes the claim for the Denver house being the source of inspiration because the book had a really heavy emphasis on the style of the entrance to this home and this fact that they both had um, lamps on either side of the doorway and the library lined with bookcases as well as the incredibly large atmospheric windows that this style house was well known for. John Glenarm is the main character in the novel and he receives word that his grandfather by the same name has died and left his home to him under one condition. The condition is that John Glenarm live in the home for a year, and then after the year, the home and the entire estate of his grandfather is his. Now, my horror story buffs out there are probably already imagining why such a condition exists, and you'd be right. In the novel, the house is a hotbed of paranormal activity, strange creatures, tunnels to treasure, and other really strange occurrences. And for the most part, the actual home at 1410 High Street in Denver is widely known to be a hotbed of paranormal activity. The house was originally built in 1897 by Reverend Richard E. Sykes, who wanted the home to be a brick Georgian revival mansion. However, due to financial grievances with the church, the Reverend was forced to sell the home in 1899 to Meredith Nicholson. 
And he was inspired to write this story because, like many homes of the early 1900s, the entire house was lit by candles. But this house was just slightly different because the candle holders all over the home at that time had little mirrors behind them, and they were all over the place in every room. And it gave this effect um, that the rooms that they were all lit in, basically you were completely surrounded by thousands of flickering candles. And Nicholson alluded to this a lot in his novel, and he included bizarre happenings that he himself claimed to have experienced in the home. A number of intruders appear in this house in the novel. A girl shows up who seems to believe that the house is actually hers. Strange creatures of shadow and light are seen in the home, and footsteps are often heard within the walls. In addition, Nicholson claimed to have discovered hidden passages in the home at 1410 High Street, one going to the carriage house and several others going to basically other homes around the neighborhood in the area. All of this mystery is really compounded by the fact that this house has a number of ornamental displays of Masonic iconography for reasons that no one has really identified because it wasn't really known um, what Richard E. Sykes' Masonic ties were. And you guys are more than welcome to walk by this house now, since I know everyone's got some free time, and see if you can spot this iconography that's sort of hidden in the architecture outside of this house. After Nicholson owned the house, it was owned by Thomas E. Moore of the Benjamin Moore Paint Company, and other sources say that he was with the H.W. Moore Equipment Company as well. After more, it was owned by Alan Deerhammer, who died there in 1946, followed by his wife, who died there in 1949, and then their daughter also died in the home in 1952. And then the property became an apartment complex. And during the time that this property was an apartment complex is where my murder story will begin. It was in the parking lot of this rather storied mansion that the brutal murder of Hubert Hahn began. On the night of September 22, 1955, Hubert Hahn performed as he normally did with the Denver Symphony Orchestra at the Phipps Mansion downtown. And he had a girlfriend named Joyce Danielson, who was a lab technician at St. Luke's Hospital, and she joined him for that evening as she normally did. The couple left the performance, and they stopped in at Cherry Street and Colfax Avenue, where the Holiday Drive-In was located for a quick meal. And from there, they drove back to the tenant house at 1410 High Street, and as they customarily did, they remained in the car for a period of time talking. And on this particular night, they stayed in the car a little bit too long. With almost no warning at all, a man suddenly opened up the driver's side door and snuck in next to Joyce Danielson and closed the door behind him. And he pointed a gun at Hubert Hahn's head and made him drive through Cheeseman Park area to 12th Avenue. Then the man told Hahn to drive north, and somewhere near the entrance to the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, the gunman ordered Hahn and Danielson out of their car. And they did as instructed, and they walked away from the now-parked car. As the couple were walking away with their backs to the gunman, the man shouted at Han, and when Han turned to respond, he was hit with six bullets fired from the twenty-two pistol that the man had been holding up to their heads to make them drive. 
the kidnapper now turned murderer. Um, he basically ordered Joyce Danielson to help him carry Han's dead body into a nearby ditch. And she complied with this terrible, gruesome task and was forced back into the car after that. And they drove away from the scene. At some time, he stopped the car and he attempted to rape Danielson and she put up a fight and she was shot in the shoulder herself. He then pistol whipped her and pushed her out of the car and ran over her as he sped away. Somehow and remarkably, Joyce Danielson survived all these injuries and she was actually spotted by railroad train crews the next morning walking along the tracks near 52nd Avenue and Dahlia Street. Police then spent five hours searching for the body of Hubert Hahn and it was found along with a very key piece of evidence that would lead them to their killer. The police ended up finding an elaborate gold Swiss watch, and they were able to trace serial numbers from inside the watch to the American Academy of Horology, located at 1901 East Colfax Avenue. And they've discovered that the watch belonged to a man named Robert Dearman, who was, at that time, an apprentice watchmaker. They arrived at Dearman's home, and he denied any involvement in this murder, and Dearman's wife finally told the police the truth and cracked because she had been told by her husband that he was involved in a robbery that had gone horribly wrong and that he had lost his watch. So he actually ordered his wife to go out and buy a similar watch so that he would have it on hand to show that that wasn't his watch because now he had this new watch. It was upon her hearing that someone had actually been shot and killed that she decided to basically give up her husband. And Robert Dearman eventually cracked himself and wrote a confession. And he said that he dismantled his gun, throwing pieces of it into ponds, ditches, and storm sewers all along the path that he drove the car, and that he burned the clothes he had been wearing. And during that process, he realized that he had lost his gold Swiss watch. So he was arrested. And at that time, if you confessed to a crime, the death penalty was not an option for prosecuting attorneys. But as many people did back then and still sort of claim to do, his defense attorneys tried to claim that he was insane and they tried to use the insanity plea. But because Joyce Danielson actually took the stand against um, her kidnapper and raper and the murderer of her boyfriend, the jury was well swayed to put him into prison for life, which is where he was sent to the Colorado State Pen for life and the murder of Hubert Hahn. And the story of the house doesn't really end there because then it became a halfway house at one point that was associated with a handful of suicides and crimes during its time. And the house was then bought by the ashram of the guru Maharaja Ji, who turned the house into a large vegetable garden outside. So there is some positive light at the end of all of this death that surrounds this home. Following that, it became a culinary and service school where students reported similar footstep sounds and odd sightings as the same, basically the same ones as Meredith Nicholson. The house then became a general split office complex, and I believe to this day it is still an office complex. And if all of this isn't enough to make you think twice about this home, inside on the oak mantle is a carved saying of Ralph Waldo Emerson stating, 
The ornament of the house is the guests who frequent it. And who those guests are is really anyone's guess. I want to just remind everybody to try to stay positive during everything that's going on right now and to continue to wash your hands. And I'll probably bring out a bonus episode this week of another historical murder just to keep the mysteries flowing and keep some content going for everyone to listen to. Um, Stay safe and until next time, everybody. Mm -hmm.